been doing a lot of watching. I said, mm-hmm. I've watched Air this weekend. Also, also catching up on Succession. Oh wow! Um, yeah, season three, almost almost the back half of season three of Succession. Uh, okay, uh, I'm getting there. Uh, spo- have you spo- have you avoided spoilers? No, discourse? spoilers are starting to happen for me because everywhere I go yes. about this show, literally, 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 there was there's a headline. Oh yeah, L.A. Times. Yeah, the, the L.A. Times really, really. Yeah, that was not cool. I think, but um, I I really think th- this week has shown that HBO is still definitely keeping the like week over week release alive because yeah. my in everything my Twitter feed my Tick, my TikTok uh, feed my TikTok feed was all was all yeah. Succession like yeah. and it was already becoming that because I was watching it but this week it mm-hmm. was so hard to avoid anything well, I think it's. There there was even I was reading some discussion like in the comment section on AV Club because they did like four articles mm-hmm. about it in the last two days. And and everybody in the comments is like, guys, you guys are really bordering on these headlines, yeah. especially the fact that you keep posting about it. Like you guys are really claiming not to spoil anything, but like basically spoiling things. And then somebody would be like, well, it's not as bad as the L.A. Times. And they're like, OK, yeah. well, yeah, well, that was that was just egregious. Yeah, but there, yeah, uh, there was there was one. There was one I got sat, uh, Sunday at like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. L.A. time, like, like and as I was soon like, as it what? Aired. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, now I now I have something to kind of I'm, I know where I'm getting to at some point. Um, yeah, it's it's almost as if like we've been binging stuff for so long that people are forgotten yeah. that you're not supposed to, to, do, to that. do that. But, you know, but it's also to show you kind of the discourse around succession, how big how big it's gotten. Just like just from season three, season four, um, it's kind of wild, and I mean mm-hmm. HBO really, really kind of hitting it out of the park right now, or HBO, HBO, HBO Max kind of hitting it out of the park right now. With TV shows. I mean, I'm also watching, you know, Perry Mason. I'm really, I'm really oh, yeah? into Perry Mason. It was funny uh, on my on nice. my work uh, call like a while ago. We had this big work call, and they're asking, like, "What's everybody watching right now?" And everyone's like, oh, "I'm watching The Last of Us. I'm watching The Last of Us." And it goes to me, I'm like. So I'm not watching The Last of Us, but I am watching Perry Mason, and that shit is great. <laughs> and they're like, the old Perry Mason? I'm like, no, 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 the new Perry Mason. New and it's Perry wild Mason. Because, like, it, the reason why I like it so much is because like the production design, the, it's such high quality production design. Because creating like 1930s LA in 2020s is extremely hard to do. Like mm-hmm. that's stuff that you have to really, you have to have some good location scouts uh, on that. So yeah, Matthew Reese mm-hmm. is incredible. Like I, I hearing him do Perry Mason, I saw him do an interview afterwards. Like, Oh my God, the accent. So different. So very different. Great. in uh great in cocaine bear. Oh, is he? <laughs> he's got like, he's got like one scene okay. uh, that he obviously did because Carrie Russell was in it. But you know <laughs> what? He's got, he's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. That's good. No, he, I, he, he's, he, he's fantastic. Perry Mason. Uh, and I said, I saw air, uh, which I really enjoyed air. Like there's something great about like just seeing Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in like a, a scene together, honestly. Mm-hmm. And Ben Affleck's comedic timing in that movie is Phil Knight is honestly mm-hmm. incredible. Like it's, it's wild. Um, like after like last, like everyone uh, last duel, I thought he was great in as well, but like, I love seeing Affleck in this like character actor, mode right now and I, I hope to see more of it from him i don't want to say that we're in an affleck because i don't think he went anywhere but he did be kind of to me at least you know to me 
watching Triple Frontier over and over and over again, as I as I like to do. He's never gone anywhere. But to when I tell people about Triple Frontier and they're like, I've never heard of that. And I like describe the cast to them. And they're like, that sounds amazing. And I'm like, it is. And Netflix just like dropped it. Yeah. And, and nobody saw it. It's funny that you bring up Joel Frontier because that will come into play in like two episodes, by the way. I want you to be oh, nice. aware of that. Because Triple, Front- Hell Triple yeah. Frontier was really big. And I haven't seen it, yeah, if you, seen it yet. So I need if to you like it. the movies we're talking about this month, watch <laughs> Triple Frontier. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I mean he kind of had one of the, a really good comeback story. <laughs> like, like COVID, like into COVID, out of COVID. Like so much mm-hmm. happened to Affleck where he like, it's kind of that opening, I mean, that the meme of like him getting all the Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, looking just depressed or whatever. Yeah. And like also, it's the best possible outcome of a midlife crisis. Yeah. Like you married, <laughs> you married your old girlfriend. Essentially. You seem happy. You now like you're the spokesperson of Dunkin' Donut or Dunkin' basically. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're back to directing. Uh, you're back to really acting in some good movies. I mean, it kind of, he, I mean, he really is because the movie he did the way back came out right when COVID hit. He is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. metric of like COVID for Ben Affleck because he does like the way back. He released um, Deep Water in that time, The Last mm-hmm. Duel in that time, um, and now with Air, like just kind of all over over the map here for 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 good mm-hmm. old Ben. Um, but yeah, anything else? Anything you've been watching, Thomas? That I've not- I really liked. I really liked D and D. I started to watch Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I. I wouldn't say it's a you know a pleasant surprise because honestly I I loved Game Night so much that I I really thought those guys would be able to pull it yeah. off because Game Night was a surprise yes that, that was, was a, a full out like was not expecting anything and it was great but now I was, I was coming into this one with knowing how well they did on on Game Night and and it is it is really fun and I've really been enjoying um uh the directors have been posting a lot of behind the scenes stuff mm-hmm. on twitter and they did like a, a, an insane amount of practical like all the creatures or like practical builds a lot of the effects yeah. they went practical as much as possible and it really gives it that kind of like retro family adventure film yeah. feel that that you know we've we've kind of been missing because we've talked about it before on this podcast but like uh regardless of how you feel about superhero movies they kind of cornered the market on action adventure films you know it's like that kind of like swashbuckling whatever like the rest of it is kind of gone because that's what superhero movies do and and this this makes you go oh yeah i used to really love movies like this um a great cast so yeah i i I thoroughly enjoyed it and i think they've been kind of having a hard time with the marketing of being like hey you don't have to know anything about dungeons and dragons to watch this movie and um and i think they really do hit on like the perfect medium of like yeah. in jokes and 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 D and D references but I mean you know it's it's D and D is is a is is a set of rules and and guidelines and and ideas. Yeah. So it's not like you have to know it's not like you have to have seen or read like fifteen books or or something to yeah. to get the movie. No I hope I hope it has a little bit more legs than I, I mean it kind of got like it didn't do as well this past weekend because of Super Mario Brothers. Mario. Not, not to get too, <laughs> not to get too topical here on this on this podcast. It's supposed to be kind of evergreen, but like, yeah, it, like it really kind of got undercut by Super Mario Brothers, which was just a people thought would be big, but I don't think anyone thought it would be as big as it ended up being. Um, mm-hmm. But still, like, 
it, it's if, if the way the way movies have been going the past few months, if it can somehow stay in theaters a little bit longer because there's not as much coming out, it's usually like maybe one new thing per week, maybe um, that's mm-hmm. big. So maybe it can have a little bit of legs. Um, again, it, I mean, it's I, I think it's an interesting time right now for movies. It's like air, I think air overperforms uh, showing that Amazon is, is fully bought into releasing stuff in theaters again. Um, mm-hmm. John Wick Four has been doing incredibly well. Scream, everything's kind of doing well, uh, for the most part. That that's non superhero related. It feels like, um, but yeah. Like, speaking of John Wick Four, I think we should dive into today's episode because heck yes, we should. The, the, the star of John Wick Four plays a key part in today's episode. And for those who don't know, I'm Brandon Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton, and this is a Nation Podcast. And this month. We are discussing the filmography and career of the one and only Catherine Bigelow. And Thomas, what did we talk about last week when kind of setting up Catherine Bigelow as a filmmaker and everything? Yeah, well, we talked about her past kind of coming up in in the world of art and, Mm -hmm. and kind of how her art senses went into especially her first film the loveless which is which plays out almost like as we said kind of moving moving portraits uh essentially it's it's playing a lot with the idea of artistic composition and then you can kind of see her as somebody who worked within photography and worked within painting to uh then explore movement within those frames yeah Uh, and then we we as we moved on to the rest of her films, we kind of saw her figuring out pacing, which is not mm-hmm. necessarily uh, nailed in in the Loveless. Uh, no. But by the time we get near dark, is is kind of dead on, and that's that's no. something that we've we've said has to come natural to her, and is and is one of her strengths is is being someone who knows when to slow things down and knows when to ramp them up completely. And in Near Dark is also when we start to get the explosions. We start to get some fire stunts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we start to see some some themes kind of evolve between Loveless and Near Dark, which is kind of this, uh, as we said, kind of continued exploration of the ideas that Terrence Malick introduced in Bad, Badlands with kind of these, these when you, when you take violence and, and people kind of breaking outside the norms and, and, set them loose it can also kind of bring out the worst in everyone uh Mm -hmm. the people who would consider themselves kind of part of the normal crowd and then we got into blue steel which which is a little different it doesn't necessarily (laughs) fit in with the trajectory but plays a little bit more on a on a thriller a little bit of an erotic Mm -hmm. thriller as we said uh i think we mentioned roger ebert kind of called it a slasher uh, but introduces her working with a strong female lead, mm-hmm. which we won't get for for another while with her. Um, but is something that will become important, I think, later in her career. Yes. Um, and and we also, as we got into Blue Steel, we talked a lot about her casting, specifically her use of character actors in supporting roles, and mm-hmm. and her kind of finding a lot of strong performances in people. Yeah, and kind of going off a lot of that, I mean, you're right with Blue Steel being kind of the last female role, like lead female role for a bit, but what I think will be fascinating this week is how she builds out these supporting female roles. And I mm-hmm. I could I could argue Angela Bassett being kind of a lead female role in Strange Days mm-hmm. um, in a way because of how much focus is on her. 
Um, but yeah, I think Blue Steel, it feels different than a lot of her stuff, but also when looking at the context, and we'll talk about this today, and she's kind of pointed it out too, of like how a lot of her movies, a lot of her characters have some sort of belief system in some way. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and with Point Break, we'll talk about today, it's like she talks about how um, with that, you have two characters who are at odds, where one is kind of this one belief system who is, is almost the belief in a system with uh with the police force and everything with Keanu Reeves' characters down to Utah. And then you have Bodie, uh Patrick Swayze, who's kind of this anti-system belief, basically, mm-hmm. but there's still these strong beliefs. And I think with Blue Steel, you kind of have that with um with Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Um, I think in in Near Dark you have that with the the vampires as well. Um uh I think as she kind of said early on that a lot of her movies deal with kind of these nomad type characters. He's almost traveling mm-hmm. characters, uh, the bikers in loveless, the loveless, the vampires in near dark, the surfers and, um, and point break. And mm-hmm. so I think that'll come into play a little bit. Um, but yeah, one, one thing I will, I'll add here that she said about blue steel that you're talking about, how it kind of doesn't fit as much. Um, in an interview she talked about, they asked her about Blue Steel and how like it was kind of a different visual style than some of her other films later on. And she goes, Blue Steel represents a kind of control I've tended to move away from. It's in a way too restrained. Blue Steel is very stylized and intentionally so, but I think I've been interested in a slightly less stylized, stylized approach to, to material. There is an elegance to Blue Steel, but it's like a series of steel frames. There's a stillness in that film that seemed appropriate. Um, and I think as we get into today's two movies, there's not as much stillness. Mm, it's it's no. very it's it's very fast paced. It's very um, frenetic. It's it's a it's a very kind of high key. She talked about how she likes her movies to be adrenal, almost like adrenaline rushes with emotional impact mm-hmm. in some way with her characters. Um, but yeah, so when we last left off last week, kind of the kind of history of this, um, we've talked a little bit about too the. Bigelow kind of her view is how she's always been questioned as being a woman and a filmmaker, who, a female filmmaker who does action films and violent films. And one quote I wanted to bring up, she talked about after being constantly asked over and over again, she says, I don't think of filmmaking as a gender related occupation or skill. Um, and she's like, I don't kind of understand why they think men can only do action. Women can do emotional stuff. And, and that will kind of be a weird key here as we get later in this episode about men doing action, women doing, uh, um, uh, emotional stuff because of her mm-hmm. relationship with James Cameron. Um, so keep that in mind. But when last left her, she was in the middle of, she was wanting to adapt a book, a story called new Rose hotel. And she was very keen on doing that as her next movie. Uh, but that would somehow fall through and Abel Ferrara ended up doing it in, I think 1998. Uh, so she didn't end up making that movie. And there's a lot of films in Bigelow's career, which we'll talk about at the end of end of the month that she almost did or didn't do. She was at one point during this time working on a Joan of Arc movie is what it was. Oh, um, wow. And that fell through. Um, but it's, it's an interesting kind of comparison because she says when coming into Hollywood in the 80s, she was only offered high school comedies. She says most female filmmakers were only off, offered high school comedies. Hmm. And I wonder if that's because of Amy Heckerling with Fast yeah. Times at Richmont High. I bet it's so. Like, and then you have like real geniuses after that with Mark mm-hmm. with, the, with Coolidge. Um, but yeah, so... After finishing Blue Steel, uh, which was a box office failure, but praised by critics, 
Bigelow began working on rewriting a script with her then-husband, James Cameron, and that script was called Johnny Utah. Johnny Utah starred in 1986 as an idea from producer Rick King, and King was on a beach one day when he saw a bunch of surfers, and he had recently read an article about Los Angeles becoming the bank-robbing capital of America. So he told producer friend Peter Abrams about this idea, and Peter, Peter Abrams would then hire a writer by the name of W, w. Peter uh, If, or If, I apologize for butchering that name, uh, to write a script from King's idea after reading an action script from Peter. Peter was working as a waiter at the time, and while he was paid $6,000 to write Johnny Utah, he had to continue working as a waiter during the day, <laughs> and then he wrote at night. After completing multiple drafts of the script, Johnny Utah was finally optioned by Columbia Pictures, and the director they attached to make that film was Ridley Scott. Oh, I was going to say Tony. Uh... <laughs> close, close. Uh, with Scott on board, the script went into pr- into pre-production with sets being built. For the lead of Johnny Utah, Johnny Depp and Charlie Sheen were up for the role. Um, but five months in the pre-production, Columbia shut down the movie and all the sets were torn down. Uh, Johnny Depp went on to star in 21 Jump Street, where he played an undercover cop that infiltrates high school high school groups. Uh, while Charlie Sheen ended up being in No Man's Land, a movie where he plays a rookie undercover cop who infiltrates a car theft ring. Seems very familiar Um to maybe point break Mm -hmm. um after a few years the script hopping around hollywood bigelow would become attached and the movie would end up at 20th century fox she would start working on rewriting the script with her then husband james cameron uh bigelow said that she liked the idea of the contrast of the two worlds as i said it was the system of the police and the anti-system of the surfers when it came to casting johnny utah fox wanted to still cast johnny depp charlie sheen Val Kilmer, uh, Willem Dafoe, and I think the big favorite was Matthew Broderick. Ooh. But Bigelow fought to cast Keanu Reeves in the role. The studio was hesitant to cast Reeves because they did not see him as an action star. Okay. I'm gonna let that, I'm gonna let that right. sit in. I'm gonna let that sit in for a bit. This based on like <laughs> like what Bill and Ted were talking. It was like Bill they and thought Ted, he was a comedy. They, they thought he was more dramatic comedic actor it was um what did he do right before this? when did he do much ado about nothing i think it was around this time let me get the actual thing because you got the yeah i love i love keanu reeves he is not good in that movie (laughs) so he had been in he hadn't been acting for long he'd been acting in 86 now actually coming to play a little bit later so he had done bill and ted's excellent adventure he had done uh parenthood Mm -hmm. um so not a lot. Of, he done the night before, which was this like I think HBO movie where it was basically after hours, but L.A. Uh, mm. and it was like in high school, a high school after hours is what I call it. Um, oh, River's Edge. He's really good in River's Edge. That's a that's a really it's Crispin Glover, Keanu Reeves, uh, Dennis Hopper. Really good mm. movie. Um, but he yeah he mostly made like comedies or dramas, and they're like oh like he's only known for these type roles like. He shouldn't be an action star. Um, and he was also about to do my own private Idaho. Idaho was a thing. Mm-hmm. But Bigelow vowed to make an action star out of Keanu Reeves. And she would eventually went out and casting him. But another name the studio wanted for Johnny Utah was Patrick Swayze. 
The main reason Fox wanted Swayze was that he had just starred in Ghost, which was a massive box mm-hmm. office hit and a critical hit, too. It was nominated for several Oscars, yep. uh, and Whoopi Goldberg won. But after reading the script, Swayze said he would rather play Bodie because he thought Bodie's views on life were closer to his. This would actually be a kind of reunion of sorts because Swayze had acted with Reeves in 1986 in a film called Young Blood, which is actually Keanu's acting debut. And Swayze says, he's like, I saw him in that movie. I was like, this kid's going places. I don't know how true that is, <laughs> uh, but it was a hockey movie in Canada. Um, but because of the Swayze casting, they, they wanted to change the name so it just didn't focus on Johnny Utah's character. So it was mm. retitled Riders on the Storm oh. after the Doors song. Yes. Yep. Um, Bigelow would then cast Gary Busey in the role of Johnny Utah's mentor, Angelo Pappas. Uh, it was it was one of the first roles Busey had done after his tragic motorcycle accident, not tragic, but but big motorcycle accident a few years later or earlier, where he suffered permanent brain damage. It was like 87, 88. Um, for the role of Tyler Endicott, uh, Bigelow went against what was initially written in the script, uh, which was a blonde-haired California girl, and cast the dark-haired Lori Petty. So I didn't, I didn't get a, a summary of the, sh- the, the movie yet. So Thomas, what is Point Break? now called point break about it's about johnny utah it's a yep. former uh college football star turned fbi agent as as you do yeah uh who gets assigned to the bank robbery unit and teams up with gary Busey to track down the ex-presidents an elite squad of bank robbers who yep. have evaded capture for three years now it's, it's a while yeah it's three years uh, yeah but Busey has this theory that uh, that they're surfers because he's obtained a sample that has uh, some sex wax in sex it, wax. which is which is a, the a yes, yes, it is, it is a type of, of wax that that those of us who who partake in the surfing lifestyle use for grip on on the boards. Um, so he has Johnny Utah kind of go undercover as a surfer to get into the surfing gangs of Los Angeles and while undercover uh Johnny Utah finds a mentor in Bodie who's this like spiritual leader slash surfer king that that has a little crew of people who follow him yeah and then he also meets Tyler Endicott who or Tyler who was uh Bodie's ex-girlfriend basically mm-hmm. and uh he falls he falls for her in the process while she teaches I mean, him to surf. While she teaches him to surf. I mean, the big thing that everyone kind of compares this to is that basically Fast and the Furious is like Point Break with cars. Like that's you know what? Of- you know what? I didn't latch on to until this time. And I've seen Point Break many, many times. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't latch on to it until this time watching it. Everybody says like, "Oh, James Cameron, like, oh, the the he stole the Pocahontas. Avatar is Point Break." <laughs> Is that what you think, really? Is that he has to learn. Yes. Okay. He goes in. He goes That's undercover. True. He has to learn everything. He's a cop. He's a, he's with the military. Yeah. He goes undercover. He finds this girl. What he has, he has to learn to ride a banshee, right? Yeah. Finds a girl who teaches him how to ride a banshee. He gets in with the crew because she teaches him how to ride a banshee. But then what? He loves it. He and he connects with the spirituality of nature that's be, that that this mm-hmm. crew is is trying to teach him. And then he becomes conflicted when it comes to his uh, original mission. I mean, Sigourney Weaver is basically Gary Busey, is what you're kind of saying. Yeah. 
And yeah. Steve, I would say Stephen Lang is like McKinley's character. Is, yeah. Is, is, is the <laughs> Why does this work so well, Thomas? Why does that? Because James so Cameron well? absolutely knows this movie backwards and forwards. I mean, he did help write it. He's uncredited, yeah. but he did help write it with Bigelow. Well, there you go. Um, you can't help it. <laughs> wow. So yeah, uh, you know what? We're just gonna hit. Go ahead and spoil this if. Even if you haven't seen Point Break, I feel like it's probably you're aware of it enough of it to know that that uh, Swayze Bodie is the the head of the ex presidents. Yeah, I agree. It, I, agree. I had honestly forgotten going back to rewatch it this time how long the movie goes without Johnny like knowing that it's the it's the, it's basically after the midpoint. It's pretty yeah. far in the movie because basically the whole midpoint is them thinking it's it's Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it's them like it's them following like the kind of skinhead guys. Like that's mm-hmm. your whole big like midpoint shootout is the thing. Um, and then it becomes like it's it's the kind of moment okay, we'll we'll dive into favorite scenes here and it's a little bit jumping ahead, but like when Keanu like kind of sees them all together, he's like, Oh shit, these are them. <laughs> like he it kind of like finally hits him because he's been so close with them. Yeah. He he just like he's cause like it's like when Busey's describing, like, okay, you're going to find guys who are like, all in a group together. They're going to be stick together. They're going to be tight. It's going to be this, yeah. this, and this. They're going to have their just, own form of communication. Yeah, and he completely misses that the group he's hanging out fits that entire description. Um, and it's, and it's why like, there's going to be a leader of some kind and this and that. Um, but, yeah, so kind of let's start. Well, for one, let me say this, too, to bring this into, into play, because... I've been reading a little bit on kind of Bigelow's past films with this, and they're kind of talking about how a lot of her early films are Westerns. And they talk about how the Loveless is kind of this like outlaw Western, you could say near darks, this vampire Western blue steel is somewhat of a kind of like good guy versus bad guy Western in a way. And, and some people actually dub point break as a wet Western is what they say. Mm. So I don't know how it changes things for people, but there you go. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, re- I mean, for one, the action sequences here, and we'll talk more about it a little bit later in onset life, but like, they're just all incredible, like every single one. Mm-hmm. And this is where we've seen her doing it in, 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 in blue steel. And we saw her kind of do certain like well-crafted violence action scenes in near dark. But like, here's where I think she really kind of, has gotten a handle of it if that makes sense. like she's mm-hmm. really mastered yeah yeah how to sure. do an action scene um and what i find so fascinating with her movies and we'll keep going as we go on is how how the levels or action are all very different like you have a foot chase you have mm-hmm. a shootout you have a bank robbery and yet they all feel unique and oh, and, yeah. and well done I also yeah. feel like her. It's like I, I said, the opening of Blue Steel feels like when he, when she's doing the training session, which, by the way, Point Break also starts off with a training mm-hmm. session. Oh, rain, slow motion. Rain, so rain, good. slow motion. But like that opening training session fe- felt like a scene that's like a predecessor to some of the like handheld stuff and Steadicam stuff in Point Break is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie, Thomas? I mean, the opening is fantastic yeah. uh yeah there's this kind of you know throughout and i think this goes again to what we've been saying about her grasp of pacing is there there 
there is this spiritual nature to surfing that she absolutely buys into mm-hmm. in in this movie and i think you could easily make this movie and and because even in the script like a lot of the surfing stuff is kind of a joke um you know it's kind of like making fun of these these surfer guys but it's it's imperative to this movie that like Bodhi is 100% sincere and then yes, that yes. is that is where Johnny's conflict comes from and and so the way that I think surfing is shot in this movie is is gorgeous and mm-hmm. and so that kind of opening scene with the with the slow motion and and the the waves mixed with the rain as as Johnny's doing his his training is yeah you're just you're just in it immediately yeah. and and I think um there is kind of a sincerity to this movie that is uh something that that makes it really stick out like there it's there's it's not cynical as as i feel like a lot of 90s action movies got to be yeah um and and i think it it all comes through like immediately in that in that first scene i think i think she drops you right into it and and you know exactly what this movie's going to be yeah no i i agree with that it, it, you you find it very early on and also you get with keanu's character you're getting this kind of almost fish out of water type character in a way where he's being brought mm-hmm. into this, this world. Um, and, and she has a lot of that, a lot of characters being introduced to new world. If it's Jamie Lee Curtis and blue steel, if it's uh, the, the, the cowboy in um, in near dark, um, mm-hmm. you can kind of a lot of that happening here, but no, I mean, it's like, there's funny moments of the surfing stuff, but yeah, it's never done as a joke. It's mm-hmm. like, I think that's what, like, I'll bring up a quote later about Roger Ebert, where he says like, yeah, even with how preposterous the plot is, it all feels like real and truthful is the yeah. thing. Yeah. You you have to you have to make this movie fully believing that like the yeah. promise of surfing is something that can lure Johnny away from his entire life. Not yeah. just Tyler. Like it's it's some somebody could make this movie and and be like, Oh, it's the girl. It's all about the girl. And and that's not, you know, the you yeah. know the last the last 15 minutes of this movie wouldn't happen if it was just about tyler you know um yeah and 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 so she does buy into it from like the start and and i think that's that's what makes this so great i you know i i uh since we didn't really do like history with this movie i will say kind of my my right, relationship with this movie is i i i view it as very close to another Patrick Swayze movie that's very near and dear to my heart, which is which is Roadhouse, Roadhouse yeah. which is like, you know, as as ridiculous as the idea of Roadhouse is, it is made with complete conviction and, and yeah. complete, you know, they, they are 100 percent committed to the idea that that being a bouncer is the coolest job in the world. <laughs> and <laughs> and this is the best, the best two coolers, bouncers, whatever the best two in the, in the biz and, and, and and it just makes that world and it sticks with it with complete sincerity and, and everything else for me in that movie just falls away. And it, and it is, it is like a, a, such an, a unique worldview, no matter how wild you think it is. And I think, I think this one, this movie's a lot more grounded than roadhouse, but it is just this kind of idea of like, this world in which a football player can become an FBI agent can become a surfer. And, and, and mm-hmm. it's just all presented as like, yeah, this, this 100% could happen. And, well, and I love it. Well, I think that's mainly because of, I mean, Bigelow for sure. Like I'm not describing that, but I also think it's Swayze and Reeves. 
Mm-hmm. It's like when you look at Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves' career, no matter how like I know kung fu, like <laughs> the matrix, it's it's like no matter how stilted the dialogue might feel, Keanu commits to it. Like no mm-hmm. matter what, yep. and and Swayze will come. I mean, Swayze commits these roles like he's playing Hamlet. Sometimes it feels mm-hmm. like when you when you get and talk about the level of preparation, where like, I mean, I'll talk about this a little bit later. But with the kind of like the of what what Swayze went through in this movie, but like he, it, it's very much in this realm of like er, like an early Tom Cruise, where he's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I'm doing my stunts. Like if my character is doing it, I'm gonna be doing this basically. And like fights to make that happen because he's like, oh, but my character is like, I want to, yeah, I can't surf fully, but I'm going to surf enough mm-hmm. <laughs> to where you can use me is the thing. Yeah. And he fully commits to it. And I think that's what's compared to other action films. The era is that like, take for instance, like speed is the example where like Dennis Hopper's the villain of speed. Mm-hmm. And while the, you can somewhat understand Dennis Hopper's like kind of ideas in speed, you're never fully with Dennis Hopper in speed, is the thing. Right, right. But with Swayze, when it gets to that moment, one of my favorite things, he's talking to the crew about, like, we're doing this for all those people in the, like, uh, those moving coffins or whatever out on the freeway. Show them mm-hmm. what life is like. I'm butchering that, the, the lines there. But that's the essence. Like, we're showing them what life is like. I'm like, yeah, I get it, Bodie. I'm on your side here. Like, it's like, and you get why Keanu wants to, like, is it's kind of, like, tempted by the dark side in a way, is because... He says the spiritual kind of aspect that like Bodhi believes in, and you you kind of want to believe it with him is the thing. It's like yeah, yeah. We're, just, we're we're it's I mean it's it's I I, I wrote down in my notes I was like do you think Michael Mann saw Point Break before Heat because there's a lot of similar things mm-hmm. <laughs> with the bank robbery stuff with like even Swayze like hey the banks even just the simple lines of like hey the bank insures your money we're not stealing from you blah 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 mm-hmm. like it feels very much like De Niro coming into the one hotel. one minute in and out and then if you go yeah, over then you blow seconds, everything yeah. it's very much similar it's similar and it's that similar dynamic of that like are you with Pacino or are you with De Niro and I mm-hmm. think that's the same way with Swayze and Reeves here which one are you with um and it becomes this like odd buddy movie in the process mm-hmm. like uh, especially, I mean, it is. It's weird. It's it's more of a romance between Bodie and 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 uh um and Johnny than it probably is Tyler and Johnny. Like like the yeah. scene, like like in terms of like kind of like the the courting aspect of it. Like I think of the scene when after um uh Bodie saves Johnny from uh uh Kiedis and the and the his his uh non red hot chili pepper people um. <laughs> Like that's that long shot of them with the long lens of them walking by the cars and they're like it's this like it's this weird like we're getting to know each other scene type yeah. thing between these two guys. Yeah, it's it's the fox and the hound. It's it's star crossed <laughs> star crossed best friends. Yeah. And I just and like and re Keanu just and, and again they they do a good job with Tyler's character too. Like when she's like anytime she sees Keanu, she's like, Hey, like if like your looks different, like you still mm-hmm. feel like you're doing this, it feels like it's part of a job or something. But now you feel like free and you feel like yourself now, and and Keanu become or or Johnny becomes fully immersed in this surf world. And then by the middle is when it's like the temptation. Like it's the the con- once they come to a like once the two th- two worlds come to come to collide, he has to kind of make some choices. Mm-hmm. And like that's the thing with the, with the big the another great scene is that big second. Uh, or the the um, well, there's the there's the second 
yeah, the, the second robbery that turns to the foot chase. Yeah. But like just an incredibly crafted scene from top to bottom. And you and you go into that like um the like them setting the car on fire at the gas station that then leads into the foot chase with them. But it's that moment again that's parodying hot fuzz of like when when can when, when Johnny has to decide to shoot the guy but he has a feeling in his mind that's probably Bodie and he can't do it is the thing. He's always like, yeah, yelling into the, which, yeah, would he would have to answer so many questions of why his bullets were all out of that gun. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's this very like, it's melodramatic, but it's, it's, it's still just, it's kind of amazing. Is the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, more scenes for you in this, in this movie. I yeah. I mean, if we're, discussing action scenes i think the uh the raid on the surf punks the the surf nazis whatever you want to call them is Mm -hmm. is insane it's it is completely different you know like you said every every action scene in this movie is is different from each other nothing feels Mm -hmm. repetitive and and the raid is so quick and chaotic and and you know you've got the the lawnmower and and it's one of those things where I think that's again a testament to her pacing. Like you've watched them lay out this raid perfectly. These are like complete FBI professionals. They're mm-hmm. all in position. They're all ready to go. And then that lawnmower cranks up, and it all goes to shit. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you just watch it get faster and faster and messier and messier until Keanu's getting stabbed in the back multiple times. <laughs> multiple people are getting shot. shot it's yeah. yeah. It's just it it goes insane nude women are running around stabbing Keanu in the back, in back. Um, no there's there's a part in one of the behind the scenes things I watched it talks about how like they had a scene where, where Keanu is with another guy and they're like they're jumping through the window or whatever mm-hmm. and they said yeah the initial plan was to, like we just go through the window we go onto the ground but like Bigelow wanted to add like a tree next to the window so when they're falling, they're falling into like shrubbery and trees, and it's like it just makes it more raw and rough is the thing. And he's mm-hmm. like, "We've never really done that before. Like to add this like extra element, like extra obstacle, and that's what's so good." And there's more players involved in this that I'll bring up later in the onset life section. But the whole filmmaking crew with this, like in an action scene, they're adding different obstacles. Like Bodie's not just being chased by uh, Johnny. He's he's or, or Johnny's not just chasing Bodie. He's having to deal with the door being shut at that one house or mm. the dog being thrown at him. There's, there's all these <laughs> ob- obstacles that are being they're getting in his way. And then it gets the final like his knee goes out. Basically, mm-hmm. is the thing. It's like there's more than just like we're doing a foot chase. They're adding extra elements that are motivated and, and they make sense logically in the world. Um, and it's not far fetched. And it's just like, like it's the the. The cinematography of that, the way it's shot is is great in that kind of foot chase. Um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, and then again, it le- when you find when that when John when uh again we're spoiling a little bit of stuff here, but like when 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 Bodie finds out that Johnny's FBI agent and you have that pep talk at the fire, like that's when you're completely bought into who Bodie is the person. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's like you have then right after that you have that skydiving sequence is the thing. And this gorgeous, well-crafted skydiving sequence, and then right after that, Swayze shows the video of Lori Petty tied up. Like mm. it's, it's that right there is like this guy is cold-blooded. Like if he, st- if he believes in something, 
he's going to go through with it, no matter what mm-hmm. the consequences might be. As long as it, yep. he, he can't have anything stand in his way is the thing. Like, it's wild. Um, but again, talk about kind of supporting players here. Gary Busey's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's Angelo Pappas. The, the, the quotable line, hey, Utah, give it to um which there's actually like a sign like a a mural somewhere in la with that on it of busey in the car with you talk to me too get me two. give me two um was it like 10 30 he's like oh i'm starving Starving. i need lunch i need lunch and he's 10 30 and it goes into so much detail they have these really great meatball sandwiches over there and and they talk in the violence and i'm like yeah busey just like he'll go off on tangents he'll just be talking about and that character's kind of that way and I love his like insults of like when you were a baby, <coughs> crap, it, crap it in your hands and smear it on your face or whatever mm-hmm. he says. To <laughs> oh man, Busey's great. Um, Tom Sizemore popping up yep. again for one scene in this movie. It's mm-hmm. build, it's building to Strange Days, but like he's in one scene in Blue Steel, he just pops up as one scene in Point Break. Where he's like, guys, I've been tracking these guys for months. You've wasted three months of my life. You think I like this hair? <laughs> Tom Sizemore just was in the nineties was a is phenomenal character actor, phenomenal mm-hmm. character actor. Um, all right, Peter, Tom Sizemore, uh, and Lori Petty. I really like Lori, Lori Petty in this. Like, um, again, she, she is this kind of like unique star in this role in this movie. Because <coughs> like, again, like we said, is that Bigelow, the script had this almost like, bleach or or blonde california girl who who's almost like a swimsuit model who surfs Mm -hmm. and she goes this kind of like tomboy like just tank girl yeah she goes with tank girl rough around the edges type girl yeah um and yeah and i think again the scene where petty kind of discovers uh uh johnny his kind of true identity and kind of the stuff he's lied about it's a great scene Mm -hmm. it's a great scene yeah and and i mean i did not on purpose, I, I I did not pick the last couple of this month uh, of programming so that we could talk about James LaGrosse for like three weeks out of a month. But <laughs> I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad about it at all. Yeah, uh, James, James LaGrosse popping up again is one of Bodie's guys. One of Bodie's guys. I'm so cold. <laughs> he's yeah, he's he's really good. He's really good in this, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then uh, McKinley. McKinley, right? Is his mm, name? McGinley, I think. McGinley. Yeah. McGinley, thank you. Yeah, yeah, hit the Yeah, uh John C. McGinley, who most people know from Scrubs. Uh is kind of the big one. But it's really fun in this. Um I it's probably this is probably an Oliver Stone thing, because he was in Platoon and Wall Street by Stone, and Bigelow worked with Stone on on Blue Steel. Mm. So she probably cast him based off those roles. Um, and she also, I haven't mentioned this too, but Bigelow also directed the episode of, of a, of a show that Oliver Stone was producing called wild palms around this time. Um, but yeah, but yeah, just a really great character actor, um, group here. Um, and then kind of my last kind of big scenes I want to talk about is, is the last bank robbery. Mm -hmm. Like the last bank robbery is a tour de force. It feels like. Like yeah. it's 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 that that great close up of of Swayze in the Reagan mask, and then the doors swing open, and we're going into the bank, and we don't mm-hmm. cut for a while until we cut back to Reeves once he's been like 
approached basically and he has to make a move but mm-hmm. everything's through his eyes going into the bank and then reeves has to like basically act like a bad guy um and it's just it's a great scene and then like Bodie starts making all these stupid decisions which is against his usual code is the thing but he's pissed off because of all this stuff and he, he gets kind of greedy is what yep. happens yep and um, he knows you know it's the last one we talked about it in in our heist movie yeah uh month at this this is the last one so he's like oh let's get let's get a little bit more yeah. so we can go down to australia and catch the <laughs> storm of the century oh as 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 hawaii or australia I thought wasn't wasn't always meant to be bondi beach okay you're right you're right um bell's beach in victoria bell's beach Beach. um but yeah it's yeah it's always we gotta go for a little bit more because it's the end of it and it he pushes that he pushes he pushes the boundaries too far Mm -hmm. um and reeves and 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 johnny knows it he's like everybody does yeah you're breaking your own rules buddy yeah the guys in the vault are like we should not be doing this right now like (laughs) just go 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 just do it just do it um and yeah, but that I want to bring up that scene just because it feels like a big predecessor to Strange Days. That point mm-hmm. of view of Keanu is just a small taste of what she's going to do a lot of in four years with Strange Days. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's really great. Any more scenes you want to talk about with this movie? Uh, I mean, the the ending it's it's iconic. Yeah. It's it's iconic kind of bromance uh iconic bromance ending and 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 that is you know the idea of bromance is something i do want to talk about is because mm-hmm. i feel like there a couple years ago or on probably more than that now like probably 10 years ago now it was really popular on the internet to kind of be like oh like point break is such a like homoerotic movie and it like doesn't even know and i'm like Catherine bigelow knows <laughs> like like she's you know if if this was made by if this was some like like Roadhouse, I, you know, I yeah. don't know that I don't know that they knew how homoerotic Roadhouse was when they were making it. You know, there's a, there's a yes. lot of queer subtext in that film. But like Catherine Bigelow absolutely knows the queer subtext in this movie. Um, yeah. But uh, but also within that is just the in a time I think it's kind of hard to uh, communicate now, like how rare it was to just have like good like deep male bonding at, at that point and to, yeah. to just have like these guys have been through it together and they care deeply about each other mm-hmm. and and you, damn it johnny's gonna let Bodie ride out for that last wave it's it's a it's a big it. moment well again, he's not coming back. back he's not coming back he's not um, coming back <laughs> but but even i'm just going with Bodie and 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 uh johnny but he, even angelo and johnny mm-hmm. is this kind of interesting like bromance in a different way it's like that's kind of the heartbreaking moment in the in the in the airplane sequence not to spoil too much with this like the heartbreak when he has to basically he kind of chooses Bodie over mm-hmm. over angelo and angelo it's kind of like well shit man i've like i've seen you as this like young like this young brother to me and now you chose this bad guy over me it's it's tough um but no yeah it's, people kind of label it now legacy wise it's like the most female gaze of a movie or the most movie, the biggest movie, the female gaze or whatever is kind of the thing mm-hmm. kind of term that, but like, well, yeah, it's like, even with to go with like, say the nudity of the women in this, it's not like when it happens, how, how, how to describe this? 
it's kind of a natural way it's done if that makes sense mm-hmm. or just the way someone's shown off it's, it's like, used it's used to especially yeah in the in the in the raid scene i think it's mm-hmm. used to kind of add to the chaos because at yeah. first it's like this idea of like oh we bust in and like interrupted someone in the middle of showering but then it's yeah. the idea of like you don't you you think of someone who who is I, I think in in any sense male or female you think of someone who is naked as being vulnerable so yes then they just kind of turn their backs on that part it's like oh that's just a naked woman screaming in the shower she's not the one that you expect to start repeatedly stabbing you in the shoulder <laughs> and he, and even in kind of like the moment when Lori Petty confronts like uh, Johnny while well, she's not nude but like you see like a lot of skin from her and with and with Keanu as well like. Mm-hmm. In this kind of oh god there's a great it's a great shot oh man it's so good when he tries to get out of bed and his knee goes out and he falls yeah. down and his oh his his uh pajama pants are like perfectly arranged where it's, it's like just quite not seeing something and i'm like wow they someone got in there and they're like all right counter you leave really right here on this mark and we're just gonna tug these down a little bit on this side it is it is so oh, artfully done we're good we're good um but yeah it's i mean that's it's good thing very everything's very artfully done as thing Mm -hmm. while point break in terms of visually feels a little more chaotic than say blue steel or near dark there's still an artfulness to this movie is the Mm -hmm. they only live to get radical they don't have any real understanding of the sea so they'll never get the spiritual side of it hey you're not gonna start chanting or anything are you (laughs) i might this is me (laughs) So, uh, you still haven't figured out what riding waves is all about, have you? It's a state of mind. It's that place where you lose yourself and you find yourself. You don't know it yet, but you got it. It's right there. I saw you with those guys. You're a pit bull. You didn't hesitate, and they didn't back you down an inch. And that is very rare in this world. Well, thanks for stepping in. Later. All right, so according to James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow, Patrick Swayze was very passionate about his his character of Bodie. Uh, they both stated that Swayze would constantly fight back on dialogue, asking why his character was saying something or doing something. Uh, Bigelow said that this actually, she liked this because, this combative nature, because it meant they were both working toward making the character believable. It made her really kind of dig into the material more since Swayze was always kind of questioning it. Questioning it. Uh, Cameron agreed and said that it was helpful. Um, and Swayze would later say he loved playing this character because he could practically do anything and say anything he wanted to as long as the character believed in it. And if you listen to our Dirty Dancing episode, you know that if Swayze is cast in something, he's going to go all out. Even mm-hmm. if like his body says, you probably shouldn't. He's like, nah, I'm going to do it. So he had multiple injuries on making uh, on the set of Point Break. So during the football sequence on the beach, he ended up re-hurting his knee that he hurt during his early football days. And I think he also hurt during Dirty Dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, know, and they said it would constantly swell up, and they would have to drain it at the end Ooh. of each. each yeah, day they were. I think they were doing that on Dirty Dancing too, right? They were. They were. <laughs> he really would just push his body to the brink. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, during the surfing scenes, he cracked at least four ribs and hurt Oof. his sternum, which required the production to make a special surfboard for him to help with the pain while he was surfing. But he's like, yeah, it didn't do much. It still like, <laughs> it still hurt. Um, but the aspect of the film that Swayze wanted to do the most was the skydiving sequences. However, the film's insurance company fought back on that. 
Swayze's yeah. Swayze's brother was actually an accomplished skydiver, so Swayze learned how to do skydiving from him, and that's what made him want to do these scenes. And even though the insurance told him not to, Swayze would still skydive uh, offset in his free time. Uh, finally, the production allowed him to do some of the skydiving scenes in the film, specifically one that goes from a close-up of him in the plane to him jumping out of the plane. Um, in all, by the end of filming, Swayze would have done over 50 jumps during the making of the film. Uh, and I think even convinced Gary Busey to do one at the end of filming is what it was. Uh, and while Swayze was doing all that with the surfing and the, and the skydiving, Bigelow was right there along with them. She states that when they were doing skydiving sequences, she was strapped to a parachute while doing it. Uh, during the surfing scenes, she would be out sitting on a surfboard off camera and would fall into the water. And so she wouldn't be seen if the camera panned over. She was basically hands on uh, on everything. Um, Gary Busey said she was amazing at looking at the details of things. Uh, Keanu compared her to Johnny Utah, saying she was motivated to get what she wanted. Uh, Petty said that Bigelow was always obsessed with making the action as perfect as possible and didn't care that much about the romance scenes. Um, and Swayze praised her for always wanting to find a deeper level of truth with the film's characters. And while Swayze did all that stuff, uh, Reeves would also prep for the movie by meeting with several FBI agents and even UCLA football players to learn how to carry himself as an FBI agent and then how to play during the, fo- during the football beach scene. Um, Reeves also took surfing lessons before the filming shot and while prepping for the film, uh, and he apparently still surfs. And Petty and Swayze also trained in surfing as well because of the film. Uh, Point Break was also the first film where Bigelow incorporated the Steadicam into her visual style. Uh, One of the times she used it the most was not during an action scene, but during Utah's first day at the FBI kind of headquarters. Actor John C. McKinley McKinley said they (laughs) spent a whole day on that set and did at least 40 40 takes of them walking when he's talking to Johnny Utah. Um, For many of the action scenes, Bigelow worked with stunt coordinator Glenn Wilder, who's uh, Maya's dad. Uh, uh, Thomas mm-hmm. uh, Glenn Wilder, who s- served as the film's second unit director. Uh, while Bigelow would storyboard all of her scenes, Wilder would be integral in the creation of some of the big scenes, like the foot chase. He was the one running with the camera, following Reeves and Swayze's stunt double when they were running through all the kind of backyards and through the houses. He was the one running along with them. Um, Swayze, by the way, was not in this scene because he was doing promo for Ghost. And Wilder said that he was initially upset he wasn't able to do the scene, but once he saw it, he's like, I'm happy he didn't do it. It looks great. Bigelow also had uh, Glenn Wilder meet with the actors on the weekends to train them in how to fight, like to throw punches and stuff. Mm-hmm. The only actor who refused to do it was Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Wilder said the first day of shooting when he <laughs> did a fight scene, Kiedis was knocked out by a punch, and then he never missed a single fight rehearsal <laughs> after that. Oh, man. Um, the stunt teams, they loved working with Bigelow because she shot action scenes different than most directors. Instead of using mostly wide shots, she liked using close-ups to really see the action uh, in the frame. And now for the close-ups in the skydiving scene, uh, they also they create a special rig that allowed them to put the actors like on kind of like a, a crane that allowed them to independently float in the air Um to where they were skydiving and they also had a cameraman also in like a floating seat as well to capture it. So it was kind of this really unique contraption to get them all to get that kind of same feel. And it looks great. 
Yeah. Like some some things you'll watch, but oh, I put them like in front of a green screen. Mm-hmm. Like one of the best, one of the, one of the worst examples of this. Um, if you've ever seen the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, this is a can't say that reference. I have. Well, if you go watch the opening skydiving sequence, it's really good, and then it cuts to a close up of the actors, and it's just in front of a green screen flying down. I was like. God, that was really good, and it got really terrible really in, in fast. In classic Power Rangers fashion, it's the 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 original Asian con, uh, content is well done, and then the American stuff that's placed in is pretty well, bad. Even even that that was American stuff they shot. It's they had oh. stunt they had stunt doubles doing the um the skydiving. You should watch just watch that sequence. It's a great sequence, and you're like, wow, this is a great sequence opening for this movie, and then it just go down it goes downhill very fast. Um. <laughs> Bigelow also said while shooting Point Break that she would actually have multiple camera units going on at once. During certain beach scenes, she'd have around four different camera units shooting particular scenes while they were there. Some were shooting underwater stuff. Some were shooting like Utah learning how to surf. And then other times it'd be like the four kind of four horsemen uh, surfing all together type thing. And Mm -hmm. she said she always wanted to have a second shot ready to go while she was shooting her current shot, so she, so she so she could just keep moving basically and not have to wait for anything. She loved to kind of keep going. Um, for the film's uh, final scene in uh, uh, Victoria in, in Australia, which they didn't shoot in Australia, they actually shot in Oregon. Ooh. But the, the waves they shot in Hawaii, but the stuff of Keanu and Patrick Swayze was in Oregon. Uh, but they actually shot it much later after production had wrapped. That's why Keanu has long hair because he had just shot Bill and Ted's bogus journey and Swayze Swayze had short hair because he just made a movie called city of joy in India. So it was, must've been like a much later after production. And I think they actually had a different ending maybe. And they redid it is what it was. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Point break would be released on July 12th, 1991. It would gross $8.5 million in its opening weekend, only being topped by, Terminator 2 Judgment Day that weekend, uh, directed by Bigelow's then-husband, James Cameron, and soon-to-be ex-husband, James Cameron. (laughs) Uh, Point Break would eventually gross $83.5 million against a $24 million budget. Finally, Bigelow had her hit with the mainstream audiences. It was her first box office success after the failures of Blue Steel and Near Dark, Um, and also did decent with critics. I said Roger Ebert praised the film, giving it three and a half out of four stars, saying... Bigelow is an interesting director for this material. She is interested in the ways her characters live dangerously for, for philosophical reasons. They aren't men of action, but men of thought who choose action as a way of expressing their beliefs. Mm, that mm-hmm. adds, that adds an intriguing element to their characters and makes the final confrontation in this movie as meaningful as it can be given the admittedly preposterous nature of the material. That kind of sums it up to me yeah, right there. Absolutely. E- Ebert really kind of nailed the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Some critics would call it cheesy. Many would say that Keanu Reeves just wasn't an action star. Again, a really bad take that's aged yep. poorly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, your your final thoughts on Point Break before we move uh, on to Strange Days? Yeah, I think I think with with Point Break, you know, the rule of threes, anything that happens three times becomes a pattern, and and like I said, I think blue steel is kind of the outlier outlier but i i think we're starting to see kind of a thesis forming here between uh the loveless and near dark and this is this idea of kind of rebels versus the establishment 
and and not that not that and and how blurred the lines are you know none none of these movies are are like hell yeah look at these people go bucking the establishment but also none of them are condemning outright the action of these of these outsiders uh i mean near dark's probably the closest but there's still redemption you know he he still thinks there's redemption for at least some of them up until the end um but I think this is the one that really clinches it is this idea of of law and order versus chaos and and having to be able to live somewhere in the middle. And yeah. I, I guess I guess Blue Steel kind of gets into the idea of like, you know, the laws are arbitrary and she she has to get around that. But yeah, it doesn't. She She's still a cop through yeah. through the movie like um it, 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 it touches on her being an outsider within the system, but doesn't mm-hmm. fully commit to it is the thing. But yeah, no, I agree. I agree with all that. Come on, think about it. This was never about money for us. It was about us against the system. That system that kills the human spirit. We stand for something. To those dead souls inching along the freeways in their metal coffins, we show them that the human spirit is still alive. So you trust me? Okay. Then don't worry about this guy. I know exactly what to do with him. And that leads us into Strange Days. So for Bigelow's next film, she partnered with her now ex-husband, James Cameron, uh, to tackle an idea he had been working on for almost a decade. That sounds like James Cameron. <laughs> Bigelow said he presented it to her in 1991, so around the time of the divorce, I guess. Um, Bigelow said that she thought it was mesmerizing, so Cameron wrote a treatment for her. But when Cameron writes treatments, he basically writes mini scripts that he titles scriptments. He did something very similar when he did a Spider-Man scriptment at one point. Uh, yes, I, which I which I have read. Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll leave yeah. it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah they say it's it's kind of just a bunch of a, a lot of ideas is kind of thing yeah not it's it's structured. it's like a it's like a treatment until you can tell that he has a scene written out in his head and so it'll be like a treatment and then it'll be a dialogue scene and then it'll go back to being a treatment and then it'll, yeah it's 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 really interesting it's a it's a yeah. cool it's a cool way to to get his idea across in like yeah. 25 to 30 pages well this one for strange days ended up being 90 pages Wow. Which is basically a script is the yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but basically when, when Cameron showed the Bigelow, Bigelow got involved and they began working together on developing Strange Days as a film. So when looking back on their time crafting the story, Bigelow said that she was the one that added most of the action moments to the script and the violent moments to the script. And Cameron was the one that added the romance angles to the story. Again, kind of contradicting the idea that men do the action, mm-hmm. women do the romance. I would argue that Cameron's kind of always done that. Like, it's like, I think his core with, if it's Sarah Connor and, and, uh, um, Kyle Reese and the Terminator, if it's Jack and Rose and Titanic, he even true lies to some extent. Like he's always trying to find this almost mm-hmm. rom- romance. I mean, he, avatar, like this yeah. romantic angle in it all. Yeah. I mean, true lies is essentially a, a, a rom-com, you know, with just a lot yeah. of action thrown into it, but yeah. And, and if you like it, Great. If you don't, I understand. Um, but one of the big elements that Bigelow added was the death of Jericho, the rapper who was killed before the movie's plot or before the movie even starts. 
Um, Bigelow added a lot of the political elements to the film, not Cameron. It seems like it was, it was all kind of Bigelow um, incorporating imagery from the Rodney King beating and the LA riots of 1992. Uh, yeah. Bigelow, Bigelow said that she went down to actually help clean up at the riots in 1992 and said that she saw how angry everyone was and she kind of wanted to take some of the imagery and feelings that were with people at that point. Uh, she was also inspired by the Lorena Bobbitt trials as well. It was happening around that time, mm-hmm. just kind of the media aspect of it. Um, one reason she gravitated toward the film was that it had a lot of noir elements, which she said yes. is her favorite genre. Uh, she said, I always thought of it as a noir thriller that takes place on the eve of the millennium, the turn of the century, and perhaps the end of the world. After, Cameron finished his 90 page scriptment with working with Bigelow. Uh, he would move on to do true lies. Um, uh, but he would still serve as the film's producer on the film, releasing it through his Lightstorm entertainment banner, which still releases his movies today. Um, Bigelow would then bring on Jay Cox, who was the writer of Martin Scorsese's age of innocence. Mm. Uh, and he would help structure the story for Cameron's scriptment. Cause there was really not much structure to it. Um, Bigelow would specifically work on the character of Mace. Mm. She kind of added the race element to the story. She said she wanted the white characters to be focused on the past and on the end of the world, while the black characters were ignoring the new technology to focus on the future and a possible new beginning with the new millennium. Mm. And with all that, before I go to the next thing, let's because I'm talking about Strange Days, but I'm realizing as I'm talking about it, not everyone knows what Strange Days is about, Thomas. So, Thomas, what is Strange Days? about uh so it's about a character played by uh ray fines who is a former cop who's kind of been taken off the force and he's now making a living in peddling uh these recordings that you can make from basically you can record your own firsthand experience of something and then someone else can play it back directly to their brain and it's like vr except you get all the sensation it it, it you you feel you're you're literally living somebody else's memory and yes. uh it seems that ray finds his character um, it's not certain that he's invented this aspect of it but he has seen the lucrative uh yes. possibility to make porn out of this and so he is a a porn dealer in in memories uh and kind of on the black market uh but he has been is being slipped these recordings by a mysterious uh serial killer who is recording himself uh killing people and he and his friend mace who's a bodyguard uh bodyguard chauffeur in 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 near near apocalyptic los angeles yeah kind of set about to determine what this killer is up to and what it has to do with finds his uh ex-girlfriend played by juliette lewis yeah and as we kind of said i said it's in the millennium so this movie was released in 1995 but it takes place basically in, December in like 30, the, the 48 hours leading the last, up to to, to 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 2000 the year 2000 the millennium so it's futuristic but not futuristic is kind of the thing yeah. it's kind of borders and we'll talk about some quotes that bigelow says of why that was an interesting kind of conceit um but it, it, it's it's a very but yeah these characters it kind of falls in these kind of noir aspects of uh juliette lewis's character her name's faith is kind of this femme fatale in a way where she's broken up with with lenny played by ray fines and she's dating this kind of uh shady music producer um 
and Mace is kind of this um, she's also has a has a kind of troubled past as long as Ray Fiennes is. And Ray Fiennes, you're right. I didn't really think about that, but he is mainly doing porn basically, but he is doing other things, but it's usually illegal activities. Cause mm-hmm. he, kind of, he has, he has a scene where he's talking to like a guy of a rich white guy. He's like, you want to see the stuff you can't do in real life. Like you want to like see what it feels like to rob a liquor store and do all, get the adrenaline rush of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it leads to him being left with, a tape of a murder and he has to find out who's the one that recorded it. And it kind of built basically builds to this possible conspiracy mm-hmm. with LAPD and uh, the music, the music producer that, that uh, faith is seeing. It's all this kind of crazy stuff that's happening um, in a very noir fashion. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. It, it, it definitely feels like those classic detective noirs and that there's always like three, three cases at once that all tie in together at the end. And it usually like one of them is like some kind of topical, like what something going on in the news yeah. that the, the detectives like not even really paying attention to until it becomes part of the case. Like all, all of that, it, yes. it absolutely feels, feels like it has the, the bones of a, of a detective noir in ways that a lot of modern, I feel like a lot of modern mystery films have kind of tossed out yeah. that, that approach because they can get kind of convoluted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it does feel kind of very it's it's interesting. It's very futuristic, but it also feels very uh, kind of retro in that sense that it's it's telling a very old fashioned style detective story. Yeah. So let me introduce this theory, my, my, my theory with this, Thomas, not mm-hmm. theory, but but I'm, I'm introducing kind of a new not a new genre, but kind of because someone else somewhat coined this, but didn't go into in depth with it. So I want to kind of bring it up here. Uh a, a, a film critic that I follow, Mariah Gates, who also invented uh, Noir Vember. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I saw her review of this and she kind of called it a millennium noir. And it got me thinking of the mid 90s to early 2000 and these ideas of noir as we near the millennium and then right after the millennium. Mm-hmm. And Strange Days is kind of the first one. And a lot of these movies. They're visually different. Some can be nonlinear in some way. I think Memento fits in this category. Mm. Um, I think The Matrix fits in this category. Mm. Um, it's a lot of these films that there's doubt in your own reality in some way or doubt in the future in some way. So I, I put The Matrix, I put Minority Report in this kind of realm. Um, another film I watched that's also not not as futuristic as this but a movie called belly that was directed by hype williams mm-hmm. um it's it was released in 98 but takes place on the eve of the millennium basic or it builds the eve of 2000 and so it's these kind of movies that deal with the noir aspects but also have this idea of the future at play and specifically that are, are around the idea of millennium and not knowing what our future would be or our future coming into question is the thing. Mm-hmm. So the Matrix, Dark City, um, Memento, uh, I think even like Run, Lola, Run fits in this category as well. Okay. Yeah. Like some of these movies, it's like there's these unique visual pieces of noir that almost stand outside of everything else. Um, some, I, ha- I, have, I have a list I'm working on right now, everyone. Um, mm-hmm. It's like basically 18 movies or so. Um, but this feels like the cornerstone of this genre that kind of starts <laughs> it 
because of this idea of dealing with the millennium on the uh, on the eve of the millennium um and how like it's not futuristic but kind of is that's my brief thoughts on that so millennium noir i guess I'm a, i might write a paper on it i don't know um <laughs> but yeah so cameron would praise jay cox's script when they were developing it specifically he praised its structure but he would do one final dialogue rewrite because he's james cameron um, but before the script was finished in 1993, Angela Bassett would sign on to the film after Bigelow sent her Cameron's original treatment, apparently. Um, in January of 1994, they were close to casting Andy Garcia in the role of Lenny. Okay. Uh, but in February, Bigelow would cast Ray Fiennes instead. She said that after seeing him in Schindler's List and also seeing him in a few scenes of Quiz Show, which was currently mm-hmm. in post-production at the time, she felt he could play the part of Lenny incredibly well. Yeah, um, absolutely. For the role of Philo Gant, which is the music producer that that Faith uh, starts seeing, uh, Bigelow was close to casting Bono, Ooh. but but that would fall through, and she would cast Michael Wincott. Cott. Yes. Most recently, he was a Nope. Yes, I big one. love I love Michael Wincott because when I was a kid, one of the first DVDs I ever owned was the Disney Three Musketeers, and he is so good in that. He's so good I was in that. so happy to see him back in Nope recently. I love him in Three Musketeers. Um, yeah, he's he, great. So dis- Such a distinctive voice, such a distinctive yeah. face, like face. such yeah. an interesting character. He's great in The Crow, great in mm, The Crow as mm-hmm. well as the villain The Crow. Um, but yeah, he, 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 he fits this, he, I mean, he definitely fits like 90s, like, villain in a way Mm -hmm. like shady villain is the thing um but for the role of faith they would they would i think they talked about casting a singer of some kind because the the character sang uh they would eventually cast uh juliette lewis instead but she also she wanted to sing and they test her out and she actually realized that she could actually sing so she actually does all the singing oh no way in the movie oh that's awesome um, which is really good um it has it has a little bit of Streets of Fire vibes there to yeah, me, Thomas. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I mean, again, Bigelow's this kind of so, protege you know, like of the Walter lead, Hill. the lead can act, and uh, wow, what a difference! <laughs> oh man, uh, the movie would end up at 20th Century Fox in a deal where Cameron had set up through his Lightstorm Entertainment uh, banner. It was a two-picture deal where Fox would get Strange Days and True Lies, with the hundred million dollars being split between them. True Lies got seventy million, and Strange Day got got thirty million. Um, really? Wow! I'll tell you this: both those budgets got higher by the yeah. end of each film. Yeah. I think I think True Lies topped out at like over a hundred million. Strange Days will top out at forty two million. Um, wow. So so the budget and also the crazy part is had three Oscar nominated actors at the time with Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett, and Juliette Lewis. Strange Days would move into production in Los Angeles. So, Thomas, what... Oh, actually, I'll ask you this first. Because uh, we, we haven't discussed it, and it's, it's different with director episodes. But do you have a history with Strange Days before this no. before this episode? I did, up until maybe like a year ago, I didn't even know this movie existed. Yeah, like, so... Yeah. Off my radar completely. Yeah, and I had never seen it either before this episode. And a big reason was due to access mm-hmm. because this was only available, I think on DVD for the longest time had never been released on blue, Blu-ray had never been released on streaming in HD. 
And then just randomly at the end of last year, popped it on HBO Max. Don't know why, but it did. And now people are kind of rediscovering it. And Zaslav um, hasn't deleted it yet. And they, yeah, they haven't deleted it yet. Weirdly enough, take away uh, um, uh, Sesame Street and and or episodes of Sesame Street and give us uh, yeah, let the kid let the kids watch Strange Days. Strange instead. Days, Strange Days. Um, but yeah, it's one I always heard about. Where like, because my buddy Logan was like, "Oh no, Strange Days is really great. You gotta watch it." But I was like, kind of waiting to see when an HD version would come out. You're like, it's gonna happen one of these days. And mm-hmm. it never did. And then somehow it did. And now people are kind of finding it. So I've been really excited to watch this movie for the first time. Um, and I say all that to lead to favorite scenes. I almost immediately was like, I already love this movie. Yes. Just something about, I was like, I'm almost pissed. People, more people don't know about this movie. In the first yeah. like 15 minutes, I was like pissed. I, I was the exact same way. I was like, how have I never seen this movie before? And and I think off the start, obviously, the opening scene is incredible. It's a incredible. It's a, if you go on Letterbox, like all the reviews are like, oh, my God, best first like five minutes of a movie. It's it a, really it's it's up there. A first person heist uh, that you're watching. You, you, you come to find out you're watching a a one of the recordings. It's kind of your intro to the technology of recording. But you're watching yeah. this this kind of heist gone wrong go go down in 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 first person and that's obviously something that we've seen that bigelow can do well and and then and then i think it's immediately then you get you're introduced to lenny you're kind of dropped right into this world and it's so unique and I, i i was just sitting watching it and kind of bathing myself in the in the aesthetic of this world and and it was so excited by it and i think part of the reason it 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 like just really immediately i was like oh i'm i'm into this is because uh i i i really kind of hate what cyberpunk became after the matrix came out yes there are so many bad matrix knockoffs that came out in the the late 90s early 2000s and it just became like cyberpunk became synonymous with the matrix if you sit if you long leather jackets yes exactly glasses yes and this is this is so cyberpunk but it's not it obviously predates the matrix and it is just its own completely original idea of what cyberpunk means and Mm. and i was yeah for that reason alone i was engrossed through the whole thing but then when you've got this kind of pedigree of cast who are just completely buying into like i mean that you know that's kind of the beauty of sci-fi isn't it it's like if you can get these really talented actors to just buy into no matter how ridiculous the story is and and find specifically finds and angela bassett are are both i think riveting in this um to to kind of keep going with with favorite scenes it i mean it's almost it's not even a scene it's like a series of shots but uh, I just think it's so powerful. You're introduced to Angela Bassett and, and mm. obviously finds is this like he's this uh, con man and he's it, she, you know, she's has this line about, you know, friends don't don't try and con their friends because he's yeah. spent this whole first scene that we see him with her just like playing her and, and yeah. you know, messing with her job and, and trying to get things out of her. And then you've got that that night that she takes him to his his apartment and kind of tucks him in and she has this flashback to when they him. Yeah. yeah when her husband was arrested and he was the one who was kind of there and was taking care of her son 
mm-hmm. and and that's back when he had his shit together mm-hmm. and now she has her shit together and he doesn't and it's such a great moment to just immediately be like all right i know both of these characters yeah and i know i know that she'll do anything for him no matter what because up until that moment you're just like what is this woman doing why is she putting up with this guy why is she she hanging out with this guy yeah yeah yeah. and that's and that's your reason and like you you now you've seen leading up to that like the torment he's been going or like not torment but like the love struck guy he is with like faith leaving him in a way Mm -hmm. where he's like oh okay and it's he keeps i mean bigelow describes that he's in a feedback loop where he keeps Mm -hmm. just like reliving things over and yeah. over and he's, over he's and living over these memories of them being in love so then it's like every time he sees her he's like hey you're gonna come back to me and she's like no i'm not but it's like you know the <laughs> last the last three times every time he sees her in person for real the last five times he's seen her she's been telling him how much she loves him in a memory and so it yeah. makes complete sense that he's delusional and, and you know having a hard time keeping track of what's real and what's not and he's got mm-hmm. this conspiracy that she's secretly in love with him because she she is telling him she's in love with him just mm-hmm. in the past in the past and he's just like he, like he he finds himself like every night and basically someone kind of describes it as like he's getting high off his own supply basically mm-hmm. in a way yeah like it's, it's a drug dealer who's, who's who's committed the first rule of that you shouldn't break um and yeah it's just again you have that great scene where like Again, like we're talking about Bassett, where like she when they're on the when they're on the bridge, they're downtown. He she gets out of the car and she's like, "Kind of telling me you need to get your shit together," type thing. Mm-hmm. And like, but she just knows like it's like he's she and you you kind of get the sense that she loves him in some way, and she can't let him go. But she's just like she's gonna have to give some tough love with him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also again you don't the what I find so fascinating again the first like almost hour of this movie is just world building mm-hmm. and building out these characters. We talked about near dark of Bigelow as a patient filmmaker. And some people would say it's a slow film because of that, but no, I think a lot is happening in that first 53 minutes of the movie. Cause I, I timed it where I'm like, okay, when's the plot going to actually start? Cause I'm not mm-hmm. getting bored. I'm just want to know when's the, like what, what's, what are we leading to is kind of mm-hmm. the thing. I'm curious. And it's literally at 53 minute mark when he gets the tape of the murder. Mm-hmm. And that's when it like, it becomes like blowout in this conspiracy thriller type thing where it's like, we got to find out who's behind this tape. But then at first 53 minutes, you, you get like, you get faith singing at the club. You get Angela Bassett's job. You introduce Tom Sizemore as Max, his best friend. You get the, the world of the squid is what it's called or whatever. Um, you get all these different things. And then we get to where the movie is. And at the, I think the hour mark I, I wrote down, I was like, this movie is made by a very confident director. Mm-hmm. That's what I kept seeing is that she is confident in every choice she is making here. Because this, yeah. is, a, this is a bold movie. And yeah. some people, what I don't like, <coughs> and this happens with Point Break and it happens here in Strange Days, is like the rumors, are, oh, well, James Cameron did a lot of this stuff. As we're watching all this, I, I think James Cameron had a hand in certain things. Mm-hmm. I think James Cameron's smart enough to know to step aside. I think there's a reason he gives her this movie and mm-hmm. lets her do it and not him. Yeah. I just, I think, I think, the, and I think they both have very different, both great action directors, but kind of different in their style of action is the mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. She, I think, you know, something I, I think I brought up kind of, watching this last avatar movie is like something about Cameron 
is is and and even in the ones you know when he gets kind of dark and dark and gritty you know back when he was doing the first terminator as like a horror movie or when he's mm-hmm. doing aliens there i still think there's a sense of wonder that kind of runs through a yeah. lot of his movies you know that's that's kind of the thing with with Titanic is that, that that threw a lot of people off the first time they saw it is like wow the first hour and a half of this movie is about how great it is to be on the Titanic <laughs> like <laughs> it it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a horror movie where where yeah. what's about to happen is looming over you um mm-hmm. and and then it continues to be after the boat is sunk the you know the overall theme continues to be this idea of wonder and and I think Bigelow's got much more of a of a grittiness to her Mm-hmm. that Cameron doesn't have and I don't know that Cameron doing this movie I don't think this vision of of LA is going to is going to come through in this way in this kind of brutal cyberpunk as we were saying uh yeah way that that she brings it about yeah you, you brought LA I want to bring up a quote she said in this book that I've been looking through for this month it was uh again Catherine Bigelow interviews edited by Peter um Keo um when talking about LA as the choice of location, she goes, um, when they kind of comp- this interview compared it to Blade Runner, really Scott's Blade, Blade Runner, she goes, it's a template, isn't it? Perhaps because there's, there's so little history here. There's a fragile balance and inherent tension. Also LA is not a city. There's no center. And in its lack of identity, it has kind of a poly identity. It's whatever you project onto it, a faceless place that harbors a multitude of identities all blurred into one. And that's yeah. kind of, and she goes, LA's culturally uh, polyglot glot society is critical to the flashpoint world of Strange Days. But it's it, but she's saying that LA, LA is still like a, a center of culture in America, but it's kind of can be anything you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I think I, I say all that because, again, we talked about earlier in the 80s where she's writing that LA street gang movie for Oliver Stone or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she has a really, we talked about how Bigelow has a very good sense of location in her movies, geography and how she shoots movies, but also location and where they're set. And I think she does that here where she understands how to morph LA into this unknown futuristic world is the mm-hmm. thing. And I don't, I think again, we've seen before is that Cameron is, is usually too obsessed with technology in a way he does it. I mean, he does it in Terminator and Terminator too. So I, I take that back, but like, I think of like aliens or, or avatar um, where it gets, and even in Terminator, he gets very big in the futuristic sci-fi elements sometimes. So like mm-hmm. she doesn't fully go that way as much. Like the one that reminds me of is like X, Ex- or whatever from Cronenberg in a mm-hmm. way where the, the kind of the way they use technology, it's simplified. Yeah. And I don't know if that's it's, it's entirely, you know, if this movie's dropping in 95, it's entirely believable, I think, to someone watching it in 95, that if nothing but this tech, this squid technology is introduced mm-hmm. in the next five years, the world could get to this point. You know, yeah. It, it's yeah. yeah, it's it's believable. Um, yeah. And obviously coming on the back end of the Rodney King riots, uh, you know, it's. It's, it doesn't feel like such a major change to to the path that, that things are already headed down. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, to go back to a quote I think I said last week of how she talked about how news and, and media was becoming more entertaining than movies. That it was like you had to do something to kind of 
draw people in the movies more. While this doesn't deal with media exactly, it's dealing with a very sensationalized topic and that's being covered in the news. That's why I think it's so fascinating when watching it too, is I'm like, Honestly, you could rip this out and put it out nowadays, change a few oh, yeah. things, and not much changed. Yeah. Oh, the, thing. Uh, the cops cops uh, not liking to be put on videotape. Wow. Who? Yeah. who when when does that ever an issue? Um, yeah. Like POV of this of this happening, and 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 kind of the the transfer of information in a way, and how things could spread. Basically, um, a protest uh, with certain groups. It's it's very all still very relevant yeah um yeah and it's probably wild to see at the time yeah thing for sure but uh a few more scenes i love i love the swinging light fight with bassett and the goons when like they're beating Mm -hmm. up ray fines and then bassett comes in that's what she kind of fully takes over as a character i think is mace um again talk about sequences i love the kind of the the kind of car chase that turns to the car fire between Bassett finds and, and Vincent D'Onofrio and William uh, uh, Feichner mm-hmm. again big year for some heat guys Feichner and Sizemore both in heat came out the same year as this um, Sizemore had a really good year with this heat and devil in a blue dress like wow. a great a great three film run for Sizemore here um, all LA movies all, uh, yep <laughs> you're right um, and then just again I don't want to go spoils spoilers or I don't want to spoil this in any way, but like the ending of this movie, like it might lose, get a little messy in some parts towards the end and the pace might get a little odd, but just the extravagant nature of the big kind of millennium party is just mm-hmm. like amazing. Yeah. The, thing. the scale is fantastic. The, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that I, I think it can feel like, like the pace, like she, kind of loses the pace a little bit there but i i think ultimately you know the message of like these three or four people mm-hmm. you know you know without spoiling it too much the the plot kind of splits between our two characters yes and to these like three or four people that we're watching on on this one storyline that obviously feels like the most important thing to the world to them and like you said with kind of the white characters focusing on the past and and kind of the African American characters not having that luxury, um, you know, you've got Mace on this on this other mission, and obviously to everyone else that is so much more important. Yeah. So it it is kind of weird to be cutting back to the other plot line wrapping up, but but I think it is smart that she instead of trying to cut it like concurrently, she does that it does make the pacing feel off because I think we would yeah. be used to having those two scenes intercut through the climax that's true and instead she wraps one up to let to kind of let everyone realize like okay that's not as important as what <laughs> is going on here we, we, you know? they, he, he built it up way too much this is the more yeah. important thing over yeah. here like that this will actually change outcomes of people's lives possibly if, yeah. if 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 done well uh if done correctly and yeah it's that key moment when they're at the party and like he's gonna go use he's going to use the video of, of what's based on the video of, of a certain, uh, uh, <coughs> cop moment. I will say, mm-hmm. um, police brutality, he, police brutality. He will, he could use to, I think, change the system. He's like, well, let me go trade it with, to get my girlfriend back. Yeah. And she's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Mm-hmm. Like you're literally putting lives at risk. To save this, this lady who doesn't love you. 
this is your life right here, right yeah. now. I like I had to pause the movie. I freaked out so much. I was like, that's 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 the fat boy slim song that came from this movie. It did. I looked that up. I was gonna tell you that. I, I, I was like, that's I was <laughs> right as soon here, as she right as now. soon as she said it, I was like, that's a, that's fat boy slim. I had no idea. <laughs> I've been dancing around this movie my whole life and I finally found it. It actually hit culturally in some other way is yeah. the thing. It's wild. Um but no, yeah, it's it's really just like I I I love I love how she portrays this world. Mm. And it makes sense because I said that she was I talked about New New Rose Hotel at the beginning because that was a cyberpunk story. And this feels like she's taking elements she probably studied in that book or whatever that she was trying to adapt and put it into this. Um yeah, a lot of great and she talked about at one point how she felt like this movie was the kind of culmination of all of her previous films. Like she's somehow everything she's been kind of looking at her entire career, even in the art world, not just in movies, all kind of came to this place with Strange Days. And she says mm-hmm. her most personal film. Um so yeah. Any of our favorite scenes you want to talk about before moving on to uh, I mean, just just kind of yeah, like the the vibe throughout is is great. I this is this is the first one we've watched in a while that uh, you know, I I texted like a bunch of people. Like as soon as I started watching it, I was like, "Have you ever heard of this movie?" And like yeah. so many people were like, "No," and I'm like, "You need to watch this movie like right now." Uh, definitely not perfect, but it's just one of those things that that is so unique and it's just like how have i never heard of this this is what you want streets of fire to be like i understand yes 100 <laughs> percent. yes <laughs> because that opening both again the opening of this is just incredible mm-hmm. like literally watch me for the opening because the the again talk about obstacles always thrown a character's way it's always there it's there's people in the and in, in the in the restaurant they're having to get through they're having to go, run up all these stairs all the doors are locked they're having to go from building to building. It's just, it's a cop show up. It's mm-hmm. just, it's an adrenaline rush of an opening, of an opening. High octane. It's, it's incredible. This is your life right here, right now. It's real time. You hear me? Real time. Time to get real, not playback. You understand me? She doesn't love you anymore. Maybe she did once. I don't know, but she doesn't now. These are used emotions. It's time to trade them in. Memories were meant to fade, Lenny. They're designed that way for a reason. Have you ever been in love with someone who didn't return that love? Yeah, Lenny. I have. Didn't stop you from loving them, right? Or being able to understand them or forgive them. I guess. So moving on to Onset Life. Production would start in June of 1994. And if you were around during June 1994, you might remember a little big media topic of the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, which occurred a week or so after filming began in Los Angeles. So... Wow. There was a lot, a lot of media frenzy around O.J. Simpson and his car chase with the police while they were making this movie, uh, which in turn is like adding on top of the Rodney King beating of two years prior. So there's so much stuff happening in L.A. in terms of culture at this point and kind of big um, 
just culture historical moments that are happening. Um, Bailo said she spent a lot of time talking with uh, Ray Fiennes about his character, saying that she saw Lenny almost as if he was a director or producer, always trying to manipulate things to to work out in his favor. Uh, I think they said she believed that Fiennes eventually started watching her for inspiration to see how she dealt with certain situations <laughs> on set. The film would shoot for 80 days. Can you guess how many days, how many of those were night shoots, Thomas? All of it. I can't think of daylight in this movie at all. 77 nights. Wow. There's a few when he wakes up and there's, and the, and the flashback of Angela Bassett with the, with, with the meeting Ray finds our day, but everything else is nighttime. God, you're just nocturnal at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, in order to capture the POV shots of the film, Bigelow had Cameron's Lightstorm Entertainment team build a specific camera that could capture these POV shots. Uh, this would take over a year to create a camera that met the requirements she was looking for. Again, if you want people to take a time, take your time building something, go to Cameron's people. I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when commenting on Bigelow's work, producer Stephen Charles Schaaf said that Bigelow was so well prepared that what would have taken another director several weeks to do, she did in a matter of days. This he was referring to as the opening subway sequence when when the D'Onofrio and Feichner are chasing the the prostitute or whatever uh, uh, when they're when she's going into the subway and it's kind of the big kind of shootout fight. Um, the reason why it was so difficult to shoot because the city of L.A. had only had only given them four hours a night to film the scene. And so she was super prepped to shoot this scene very quickly um, for the film's final New Year's Eve sequence. Over 50 off duty police officers were hired to control an assembled crowd of 10,000 people who had to pay $10 in advance to attend the event. The filmmakers had hired rave promoters to bring in bands to get the extras there. So basically having concerts mm-hmm. to get extras there at night. It was reported they, they spent a total of $750,000 on the event which included the production's rental of half of the 1,300 rooms in the bon, bon, Bonaventure Hotel that was down there. Mm-hmm. Um, the event started at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night and ended shortly before its scheduled end at 4 a.m. as five people were hospitalized for suffering overdoses of ecstasy. Wow. Talk about a producing problem there, Tom. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, man. Cinematographer, and she kind of she praises uh, her cinematographer Matthew F. Leonetti a lot, and her her uh, Steadicam operator. But Leonetti uh, helped Bigelow film the scenes, um, the kind of POV scenes, and they choreographed weeks in advance. She said the opening sequence, which features a 16 foot jump between two buildings by a stunt performer without a harness, took two years to coordinate, and they created hidden cuts within the scene. For example, the jump was filmed with a helmet camera while the run up the stairs required a steady cam. Hmm. Um, according to Cameron, he says, we designed, we designed transitions that would work seamlessly. It was a very technical scene that doesn't look technical. Uh, another scene later on they talked about shooting was the sequence when Iris is runs in front of a speeding freight train. Yeah. How did they shot that, Thomas? Oh, God. I have no idea. <laughs> Because insurance would not allow him to do that. No, 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 no. Because she, they like, sh- dives. She barely makes it. She, like, dives yeah. in front of it. They shot it backwards. So the train Ooh. is backing up, and they're running backwards. And they wow. they, re- they reversed it in editing. <coughs> 
Um, when asked about why the futuristic setting wasn't that futuristic, Bigelow said, think back four years. What's different? Your computer has gotten smaller and more people have cellular phones. You think that in year 2000, there'll be this radical transformation, but the most that will happen is that your computer will sit in the palm of your hand and you'll be able to speak to it. Hmm. That's that's yeah, close. And we'll all uh, be a lot more angry. Yeah. She goes, I do think the turn of the millennium is going to be a huge cultural event, a merchandising and media extravaganza of nightmarish proportions. <laughs> um, another big quote I wanted to bring up. She, when asked about the film's brutal sexual assault scene, the kind of big murder mm-hmm. scene that happens midway through, they asked why she included it. And she's and Bigelow had, has commented before, like violence against women's ha- violence against women happens all the time. And she says here, because knowledge is power. The answer is not to shield one's vision and cut oneself off from awareness. There's nothing more dangerous than lack of awareness. Yeah. I think that line can be applied to a lot of things. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, I noticed in this one, yeah, it's it's very brutal and very long in this one. And and there's she there's a sexual assault scene in in Blue Steel that we didn't really talk about. Mm-hmm last week as well but yeah it's especially kind of seeing this one i was like oh that's that's two two in a row or two with with one movie in between but yeah that's completely understandable but i i think and i don't want to analyze too much of this because i don't think i'm the proper person to do this um but she she does it in a way it's never it doesn't feel exploitative in any way is the thing Mm. and sometimes people do that with these type scenes and it's Focusing on the 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 dark nature of it all, like it's mm-hmm. very much like showing it as a brutal thing, yeah, and how it affects the people who see it, mm-hmm. of how brutal it is, and how there's no, there's nothing. It, it's just the way it's shown. It's like there's she, you never you, you I think you understand her viewpoint on it very clearly and how she shoots it. Yeah, is that she makes it so cold and distant to where it, it, you can't find any goodness whatsoever in this character who does it basically is the thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about that. Um, yeah. And it's, it's different if, again, it's different if a man kind of portrays this, it's, it's just, it's, it's not shot the same way. I don't think, I think she has a very clear way of how she wants to show this particular um, horrible moment. And tragic moment. Mm. So yeah. Um, and post production, uh, James Cameron would actually hop on and do an uncredited edit of the film as well, um, because he wasn't in the editors' union. He was not allowed to get credit for the for editing the movie, um, but he would later get credit for Titanic when he actually got into the union at that point. Um, the film was released. On October 6th, uh, 1995, or premiered on October 6th, 1995 in New York. It premiered October 13th, 1995, where it was met with very mixed critical prey or very mixed critical reception. Hmm. It was polarizing. Um, Ebert gave it four out of four stars, calling it a technical, tour, a technical tour de force. Hell yeah, he, Rod. He, he, he tends to be, like, I mean, He's not always right about things, not to praise Roger Ebert here, but he he tends to be with some of those movies that feel like everyone else hates the time. He's mm-hmm. somehow just right. Like, no, this is kind of really good. Like you guys are kind of missing mm-hmm. what this is. Um, 
a lot of people like kind of uh, criticized the violence in the movie is what it was um, saying that she, that she stylized the violence too much in a way. Um, and that it's just not as, let's see what some people call it her magnum opus. Some people say that, it, that the characters are miscast. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, some say it was too polished. Um, a lot of different, th- it's just very like mixed down the board. It feels like, um, but people praise the atmosphere of it all. It's just, it's, it's weirdly how just mixed it is. Um, even the performances, um, it was also the big thing. It was a box office disaster. I would oh, say not, no. not even a bomb. It was a disaster. It only made $8 million off its $42 million budget. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, almost derailing her career. Basically. Um, it made $31,000 that first weekend when it premiered. Then it only made $3.6 million since opening weekend. It, it it never caught up. It ended up only making $8 million by the end of it. Uh, only a sixth of its budget, basically. Um, people cre- are credited basically the, the failure due to poor marketing strategy and lack of audience understanding of what the movie was about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then it would basically would slip into obscurity due to kind of a, a no really good home video release um, afterwards. It had a was released on VHS in 96 released on Laserdisc in 96, was released on DVD in 99, then apparently was never released on anything again wow. after 99. Mm. So, so yeah. So it coming on HBO Max in this current era is a very big deal. So if you haven't seen Strange Days, I this is one of those I highly recommend going to see it if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Because... It's honestly, honestly, that kind of a failure of a movie was would end certain people's careers. I will say that, and that's it's a good midpoint of our of our series in a way, because it's kind of it's the lowest probably possibly the lowest low of her career. I would say we'll find out if there's more later, but as of right now, I think it's the lowest low of her career, and it could possibly be one of her best movies. Yeah. It's definitely one of the the best discoveries I've had in in the past couple of months. Uh, I would agree with that. I agree completely with that. I think it's one of the best discoveries I've, we've had on the show, in my opinion. For mm-hmm. me, for me, it's at least in the past year. Um, because we kind of we with the, the, these director episodes, we a lot of times we've seen the movies we're covering as solo episodes. But these director episodes will have us go find stuff that we haven't seen as much. I think I talked mm-hmm. about the, the 12 chairs for Mel Brooks where like I'd heard about, but never saw it. And this is kind of the same way here with strange days is that I've heard about, it, never saw it, heard it is, is good, but I didn't expect it to be as good as it is mm-hmm. in every, in every kind of way. Like I said, is it perfect? No, but to see this movie being made in 95 and seeing how, how well it predicted the future in a weird way, without really trying to predict the future is the thing is kind of insane. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. kind of insane. Um, yeah. So what are your final thoughts on strange days, Thomas? Uh, yeah. Like you said, it's, it's, it is a wholly confident piece of work. It is unique. It is every, everyone from, from 
you know, the way it's shot to the production design to especially the cast. Like, uh, I, that's that's part of like sitting watching it. I'm just like, how did we get so lucky to get like Ray Fiennes and Angela Bassett in a movie like this weird and unique at this point in either of their careers? Yeah. With Catherine Bigelow making it with James Cameron on the script and and I'm just seeing it in, in 2023. But yeah. um yeah, just everyone here is is firing on all cylinders and and for this to be her fifth film, right? Yeah, her fifth film. Yeah, that's crazy. Um and yeah, I I Yeah, I mean, I was probably maybe 30 minutes into it when I started texting everyone i could think of be like watch this movie so, i thought about texting and i was like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna wait for the show i'm gonna yep, wait for the show yep. <laughs> gotta wait and see um yeah i i, I logged in on letterbox but i haven't written a review yet but it, it, same, it will be same. getting a, a glowing one from me soon um but yeah i mean as far as as far as this fits within our kind of journey with her again yeah. it's that it's that pacing it's that figuring out when to just let it lie in this world when to go absolutely wild with the action. And I think it, and that, and that's, it brings me back to, to her kind of viewing it as a classic detective story mm-hmm. is um, that's part of the reason why it felt kind of so refreshing to me was because it felt so new and so classic at the same time. And, and like you said, it, she kind of gives it an hour to just kind of get to know Lenny and get to know his world. And that's kind of, that's, you know, that's your classic, uh, you know, Marlowe kind of ideas. Yeah. Like, here's this case I've been working on, and here's this case I've been working on, and here's what's going on in my life right now. And oh, however many chapters in, this new case just landed on my desk. And you know, yeah. when you're reading it, you know all these cases are going to tie together. But that's kind of the beauty of of constructing this story. And mm-hmm. and so it it is it is kind of this nostalgic. It's it's adventurous and nostalgic all at the same time, uh, which is great. Which is a great feeling to to consume it so yeah uh and then as far as kind of her thesis i think it's absolutely there this kind of outsiders you know it's these are the good guys they're fighting for what's good but but you know the police commissioner does not see them as the good guys yeah at least at least not at at, at first um but this idea of like what does it take a, a chauffeur and a and a porn peddler to kind of write the wrongs of this to 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 write the path that this city is headed down mm-hmm. um it's definitely not going to be the cops in this movie <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and, and again going off that with mace being kind of the key part here with strange days is, is the idea of like a character's belief system mm-hmm. is that mace is very strong in her belief system where she like she won't do the squids she won't do any of this uh she's living in the now and the future not the past um I think I think someone like Bodhi could relate to that is the thing. I, I don't think Bodhi is living in the past whatsoever and point break. He's living in the future and the now is the thing. Um, and so you kind of have those these characters who have this belief system in some way. Mm-hmm. And you have these kind of these con- these competing belief systems where Ray finds his believes in one thing and then Bassett believes in another or Bodhi believes in one thing and Johnny believes in another, but then is tempted by the other. Um, near dark is similar thing. Um, blue steel is different where it's competing, but they're never, they're never tempted by the other one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and kind of, like I said, these, these outsiders, these nomads in a way, um, 
and then how she subverts genre time and time again. We talked about last week, I kind of read a few things of how she, you say you take a thing that you can relate to and know of a genre, turn it on its side, push it to its far, push it as far as you can go and then bring it back around to something you know and love and recognize. I think that's all kind of here um, in these movies we're seeing. So, but that's the that's the end of our kind of first kind of really the our midpoint our first five films of her of her career. We got five more coming up uh, next week. We're doing three of them. We're doing the Weight of Water uh, from two thousand, uh, I believe, and then um, I'm sorry, two thousand two. Um, I think that's again. We'll talk about this more. No, two thousand. We'll talk about this more. Is that a lot of her films have bad releases, which we just said with Strange Days, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't do as well financially because of that. Near Dark was that way. Blue Steel was kind of that way. Um, so yeah, but we're talking about The Weight of Water, which stars uh, uh, Sean Penn, Elizabeth Hurley, Sarah Polly, Catherine McCormick. And then we're doing K-19 Widowmaker, which stars Liam Neeson and Harrison Ford. And then we're talking about her Oscar-winning movie, The Hurt Locker, to kind of end part three. So go watch this if you can. I know The Weight of Water will be hard to find. We're having a hard time finding it. We're, we're, <laughs> hopefully we'll find it soon. But yeah, we hope you stay tuned for that. That's all we have for this episode. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on our podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, wherever your podcast. Uh, if you want to send us an email and tell us something, tell us how you love Catherine Bigelow. Maybe maybe you watch Strange Days and we want to hear and you want to tell us your thoughts. I would love to hear that. So email Podcast at gmail.com. And for some reason, if you haven't given us a review yet, please do that as soon as possible. You know, in the words of Bodie, if you want the ultimate, you've got to be willing to pay the ultimate price. In this case, the ultimate is more episodes of this podcast. Yeah. And the ultimate price is just leaving a review and saying yeah. how much you enjoy it. You know what you could also do? You could also join our Patreon if you want to. Yeah, that's uh, that's the ultimate that's price. That's the ultimate thing. Uh, ultimate price, literally. $1, $5, $10 levels you can do. We're actually doing... We're not doing a Bigelow movie for our first Patreon, but David and I are going to sit down and talk about the Lost Boys because Lost Boys came out when Near Dark was came out. And it'll be a good kind of comparison piece to two vampire films around the same time and kind of the difference between Bigelow's version of vampire and the kind of big pop version of a vampire with the Lost Boys. So stay mm-hmm. tuned for that. Um, we'll figure out our part, our second episode of the month soon. Um, but yeah, and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd. All those wonderful places that you love. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.